free. Go get them. Hi, everybody. What a great kind of segue into what we're talking about right now, talking about the church, talking about what it means to, to be a spiritual family. And uh, my name is Carl, and last week we made this comment that when, the spirit, when a spiritual family is working right, there is nothing like it. And that's uh, who, who we want to be. And uh, I made a little confession that my wife had asked me to start asking her every day how she's doing. And I just want to give a little testimony. I've been doing that. Um, maybe half the time this week. Did a baby Blair about half the time? She's saying I did good. That's great. So I'd like to thank all of you who after the service came up to her and said, so Blair, how was your day? You know, and it takes all of us, I guess, to raise a child. And the amount of husbands who like stopped me and said, man, I thought I was a bad husband, but then I heard you don't even ask your wife how her day is. So I feel great about myself and our marriage. And I thought that's my whole goal, just to be vulnerable up here so you will feel immensely better about yourself when you leave church on Sunday morning. But maybe even more than that, I think most encouraging I heard is the amount of life groups who are having really deep, beyond the surface conversations about what it means to fight for one another's identities, be a vulnerable people. So I just want to say, we'd love for you to be a part of a life group if you're not. And at the end of the service, you can go to the Connect Center and begin the process. It is a process. But eventually, to get into a life group, to be a part of one of these communities, we'd love for you to be able to do that. And if you missed last week and you have no idea what I'm talking about right now, then just know that we started by studying this group of people, this early church that we see in the scriptures that was based out of the city of Thessalonica. And this was an individualistic city with a very individualistic culture. And this church had very limited, only a few weeks of training from a senior pastor. And so... It says in the scripture, this phrase we landed on, but God himself taught them how to love one another. We're just still kind of letting that phrase resonate in us that, that that could occur and that the result would be that their love would be famous all throughout the region. And so that's just wild to me. The apostle Paul, nor any other leader, was able to be there day in, day out to teach them this. So it became very apparent that Jesus was the head of his church. We see that principle in Colossians chapter 1, verse 17 and 18. Let's take a look at that. It says, and actually, could you just read this with me? He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. And here's what this means. If Jesus is head of the church, I am not. And so if I'm, I may be a pastor here, I am an elder here, you may be a life group leader, a kids pastor, a worship leader, we can stand on this stage, but that does not put us in charge of this church. Jesus is the head of the church. We're not. We are given the opportunity to steward the people and the sheep that come through, but we are reminded that we are not the chief shepherd that he is. And so if that's the case, then we have to follow Jesus as our leader, and he has to be the head of the church. And when he's not the head of the church, everything falls apart. We have to do it his way. And if we do it his way, it all works. But his way is the way of love. And I love seeing this in Ephesians chapter 1. I love the messages rendition says, long before he laid down earth's foundations, he had us in mind. Stunning thought. He had settled on us as the focus of his love, to be made whole and holy by his love. Long, long ago, he had decided to adopt, what's this word? 
into his family through Jesus Christ. And this scripture leads us to kind of point two. Here's what we need to know about it, is that I'm an adoptee and you're an adoptee, okay? And here's our point we're gonna put up here for you, is that if, if as the head of this spiritual family, Jesus connects me to fellow adoptees, I would not normally connect with. Meaning we signed up for him and we all got each other. You did not get adopted by an individual into an, into an individual. You got adopted by a father into a family. And so he brings all of us adoptees into one family and begins to teach us what it means to love, which means I will experience my heavenly father in part by how I interact with you. That is so awesome. And that is so messy, as many of you already, as many of you already know. And so if that is the case, then what you need to know is that maybe there's a reason why you come to church on Sunday mornings. You know, when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, if you wanted great worship, you got in your car and you drove to that church to experience it. If you wanted to hear a great sermon, then what you did is you jumped in your car and you drove to where they were preaching. But now you don't have to do any of that. It's all online for you. You can't find better worship than James Mark. He's my brother. I'm biased, but I think that's the truth. But you can find a better sermon than what you're going to hear today. By the time you get to the parking lot, just Google better sermon than Carl. It'll come up. You can listen to that, and, you, and you're well on your way down the road. But what you cannot experience well on the way on the road by yourself in your car is people. Therefore, you don't have the ability to practice that love among your fellow adoptees who you would not normally be associated with but are because of the kingdom of God. And... You get to feel that in multiple ways, and part of the way that we all get to practice it is by coming under this roof together and living it out. That's what the Thessalonians did, and the entire region was affected, and if you study church history, it began to affect people all throughout history as well. So what we're gonna see today is that Paul, Silas, Timothy, the men who wrote that first Thessalonians letter we spoke of, did a fantastic job of passing this message down to us, but an argument could be made that that letter almost didn't happen. You could make an argument that not just that letter, but multiple other letters that make up what you and I call the New Testament may not have occurred had it not been, been for a man who is barely mentioned, not really known, but his influence and impact is profoundly felt. And we're gonna look at this man as an example, a, a blueprint of what it could be to be spiritual family for all of us together under this one roof because this man, when he got touched by the kindness of Jesus, you could, he could all of a sudden see in other people what they couldn't see and he could actually see in others what they refused to see about themselves or other people and so I wanna dive into that man but before we do, I'd like to tell you about another group of people that are really deeply inspiring to me. If you were at youth camp this summer, you got to celebrate this with me but you know, I remember the first time I walked into a prison to do prison ministry. It was December of 2022, and I have to admit, I was a little nervous. I did not know what to expect. I just remember we walked into that gate and looked, and there was just a sea of people wearing white jumpsuits because that's what they're issued when they go to, to prison. And I was a little scared, to be quite blunt. I mean, I had seen TV shows, and on the day you visited on TV is the day they have a meltdown and a riot, you know? And so I was like, that's probably gonna happen today. And I, I know it's a women's prison, but I don't trust myself and my ninja skills to get myself out of this, so what's gonna occur? So just to paint the scene, you walk in, and the chapel you're, we had to go to is in the very, very back of this campus, 
And you, we get there, and then these ladies begin to file in. And when they walk up, they come to the security guard who's right there at the front, and they'll say, hi, my number is 99643. I live in dorm K2. Next one, I'm 85739, I'm from H1. And they just come through, they give all their numbers, and they take a seat. The first thing we do is we make sure to give them a name tag and often a little nickname to encourage them that they are more than a number and a record. That the state of Texas has to give them that number and that record, but that they are more than that. And then we do some announcements and songs, and about the time we get settled in, you'll hear, roll call. They have to all stand up again, right in the middle of what we're doing, go back to the back. I'm 99643, I'm in J1. And they have to do it all over again. That's why a lot of prisoners say the, first, the thing they love more than anything when they get out is not having to say their, their number over and over again. And the monotonous of that's what, who you are, that's the amount of dignity that you have. Well, on uh, this particular night, we were ministering what's called the faith dorm. It's like 60 to 70 ladies. This is kind of a good behavior incentive to be here. Most of these women really want God. Most are following Jesus, or to some degree they are, and they're wanting to learn. Um, not everybody is, but a lot of people are. And they finally come in and sit down. They don't know I'm a pastor. They don't know I'm a leader. They just know some guy gave me the, the badge, put my name tag on. That's all they know about me. And I'm sitting on the second row, and the leader gets up and says, well, on, in two days, we're going to be doing a graduation ceremony for about eight ladies who are going through this program and so we, to, this is a rehearsal. So this is like, if you ever did your graduation rehearsal, this is rehearsal. So if you're graduating, come on up. And, um, and when they all walked on stage, they were given this poster. And I don't know it, but they've been told that on one side of the poster, they, they are told, been told to write out words that describe who they were before Jesus. And then they're gonna flip it over and show all of us who they are now as a result of their relationship with Jesus. All I knew was that Nicole C. Mullen started singing, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that's really all you need. But then the first lady walks up there, and she has this sign, and it says, lost, broken, prideful, uncovered by the blood. And then she flipped it, found, restored, redeemed, saved by the blood, by his blood. And you just feel it in the room. It just begins to build. And then one by one, they all begin to, to come up. And, and I just captured some of these that you could see it. One lady said, broken, lost, drugs, but now joyful, save, God, sobriety, beautiful redemption story, trafficked, witchcraft, cursed. What a label. But now rescued, chosen, and happy. Tainted, innocence taken. Lost, broken, alone, and shattered. Jesus through the cross, alive in God's healing hand. Next lady came up broken and suicidal and mentioned all these words below it that described her world. And when she flipped that over, people started cheering when they, she said, made stronger and whole. Oh, beautiful. Self-harm, hated, unloved, depressed, ugly, sad. You, you just imagine why someone might do the crimes that they do if that's their identity, but now loved, cherished, beautiful, and happy. Lost, runaway child, mentally abused, drugs, clubs, prison, what, but she's now found, redeemed, loved unconditionally, prayer warrior, true to self, focused, and a mighty woman of God. I love that she wrote that. Broken, lost, lonely, scared, hopeless, five really heavy words. She just goes, I'm God's. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? I'm God's. I remember when she walked up, and said, I'm sexually immoral, ignorant, liar, idolater, godless, in one word, 
redeemed. And Nicole C. Mullen is hitting the high notes about this time in the, in the song, and I am just a basket case on, on the front row as everybody stood up and began to clap. But then from the back, we hear, one more, one more, and turned around, and the security guard officer was in the back scribbling, and she runs up to the front, and she stands next to these ladies and says, I was lost, and turns it over to the other side, said, now I'm found. And she stood up there with all these prisoners and it was just beautiful. You could see we are all apart from Christ, criminals. We're all apart from Christ, carrying those heavy, baggage, those heavy labels and baggage and sin and shame and but Jesus. And I am on the front row undone, even more so than I am right now. And I just remember thinking, thank God, I don't have to get up and say anything right now. I just, I couldn't do it even if I had to. And wouldn't you know it, right at that moment, the leader, Mike, walks up and says, well, I can tell Carl's really visibly affected by what just occurred. Carl, why don't you come up and share a few words? <laughs> and I remember thinking, I'm going I'm I'm to shoot Mike after this, and I, I don't know what to say. I just kept thinking, that's the gospel we just witnessed. That's it. Like, these, these ladies did not just pray a prayer to get out a hell-free card. They have now been redeemed by Jesus, and this discipleship process has transformed them. They're different women now. So if they walked in, you would not know them apart from their white jumpsuits. If they were just wearing free-world clothes, you wouldn't even know it because of the transformation of what's gone on inside of them. I wish I could have said all that. I got up there and was like, I just dumbfounded, and I finally just said, ladies, I've been preaching for over 30 years. That is the most beautiful sermon I've ever seen. And if I could, I wish we could just go on the road. I'll preach. Y'all come do that. I promise revival will break out wherever we go. And they were like, get us out of here. Let's do that. Let's go. One of the women yelled something like, let's go to Whataburger. They had already like decided what we were going to do when we got out of there. And that night, something changed in me. I remember I came home and Blair could just see it on my face. I was like, I don't have words for what happened, but it's like something shifted in me where these women became more than those confined by a white jumpsuit. This was Irma and Tay and Kiosha, Maria, Lisa, Tiffany, Chelsea. They had names and they were people. And it's like before... I had walked in with my eyes wide open, but I was not able to see them. George Bernard Shaw famously wrote, the worst sin towards our fellow creatures is not to hate them, but to be indifferent to them. That's the essence of inhumanity. No crueler punishment can be devised than to not see someone, to render them unimportant or invisible. And I just wonder if in some small way we're all guilty of these things. Maybe in some way we're all walking around with our eyes wide open and not truly seeing each other. Now, I know that most of our situations are not going to be as dramatic as what I just um, described that happened in prison, but would you all agree that we have a, a world where our social dynamics are crumbling faster by the day? I think we could all use a little help, all use a little practice in how to see someone through the white jumpsuit. And I know we all long that others would see us in that same way. Here's our hope. If Jesus is the head of his church, if Jesus does have a transforming gospel that does not just end with they pray this prayer and go to heaven, but it is supposed to get heaven into you and transform you from the inside out, then that means that we can leave here changed. 
by the power of the Holy Spirit to be the church of Jesus Christ. And thankfully, in the Bible, we see a group of people who get to live this out, some blueprints. We can go back to that early church in the book of Acts and we can learn from them. I said it last week, wherever revival happens, riot is right on its heels. And in Acts chapter two, revival happens. The Holy Spirit comes because Jesus has just gone to uh, heaven and heaven power breaks out. 3,000 people saved in a day. They're meeting in small groups, these families being family for one another. And as soon as that happens, these people called followers of the way, because they were following the way of Jesus, now have some enemies, some people called Pharisees. Their whole goal is to snuff out this work that is the way that they believe is off course from the ways that, of their scriptures that they've been taught. And so there's a chief leader among them named Saul, Saul of Tarsus. And he is known for and famous all throughout the land for making it his chief ambition to stomp out the followers of the way and to put this to an absolute halt. Now, he has murdered people. He has terrorized people. So his fame has spread all throughout the land. And then he's on the, on the way to hurt even some more people in another city. And on the way, Jesus meets him. And when Jesus meets him, all of a sudden, his eyes are opened. Blinded for a moment, eyes wide open, and he sees Jesus he sees the scriptures. He sees people completely different. Then you witness him going around to everybody going, I was wrong. This man I was talking about, he is the way, the truth, and the life, and you should follow him. And he just comes into the church like, here I am. Let's do this. But the problem is his fame is spread. There is no internet. You do not Google like we do. Is this guy for real? You know, like, can I trust this leader? You know, like, there is no Google. And all everybody's heard is, keep clear from Saul of Tarsus. And then in Acts chapter nine, verse 26, we see what, well, what a warm reception he gets from the church. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples and they were all afraid of him for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Makes perfect sense to me. And I just have to wonder if his whole story should have stopped at verse 26. Because he shut out. And maybe Thessalonians wouldn't have happened. Maybe it would. We don't know. But an argument can be made that if there was not verse 27, something could have halted and stopped. But the first two words of verse 27, something you all need to hear, we all need to see, and we all need to live. And here's what they are. But Barnabas. Can we all say this together? But Barnabas. You all just memorized your scripture for the day. As long as you put... 927A on there, there are more words, but, but Barnabas. Barnabas steps on the scene and he's about to change the course of Saul's life. Now, if you don't know who Barnabas is, we first meet him in chapter four of the book of Acts. The church is exploding, but they don't have money to keep up with it, so people are selling things and they're bringing it to the church leaders to help them with the, the needs of the church. And we learn that Barnabas sells a field that he owned, he brings the money, he gives it to the leaders, and they begin to disperse that as need be. And when you meet Barnabas in chapter four, what's kind of interesting to me is very few places in scripture do you see someone given a name with a definition of what that name is. Usually when they're given a name, it's, it's because of where they were from or who their father was. 
But we learned that Barnabas was not actually his name, but it was something that was given to him as a result of the character that he displayed. We see it in chapter four, verse 36. There was a Levite, a native of Cyprus, Joseph, so this is what his real name is, to whom the apostles gave the name Barnabas, which means what? Son of encouragement. So it's like, well, every time they saw him, like, what up, SOE? I mean, like, this is our son of encouragement. What up, bro? I mean, like, he just lives this life. And so he is given this nickname, and this is, this is who he is. We learn very little about him. A little later, there's three words that describe him in chapter 11. They do a brief description of him, and it says that Barnabas was a good man. Do we have that from chapter 11? He was a good man. He was full of faith in the Holy Spirit. So we know that he was a good man. We know he was full of the Holy Spirit. We know he was filled with faith, and it seems like he had to tap into the Spirit of God and the faith to be able to see in Saul what others could not see. To be able to look at a man through the white jumpsuit and say, I know you did that to my friend Stephen. I know you did that to my brothers and sisters over there, but I don't see you as the criminal you are. You were, I see you as the apostle you might be. But Barnabas changes everything. What did he do? Let's go back and Chapter 9, verse 27 and 28. But Barnabas took Saul. He brought him to the apostles. And he described for them how on the road Saul had seen the Lord who had spoken to Saul. And how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. So Saul, this is just such a big, this little so. It's just so little. It's so huge. Because Barnabas is a bridge. Because Barnabas makes a way. Because Barnabas lends his name his reputation. So Saul went in and out among them in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. That one little so is a game changer in our scriptures. Now there was another man named Ananias who had actually come and prayed for uh, Saul before that. And Jesus just basically had to pick Ananias up and throw him over at Saul because he didn't want to go. But Barnabas seems to be the first person who truly saw him and who got him. Let me ask you a question. Who's the first person who saw you? Like, even right now, who's the person that out of everybody else you just think, they see me? They get me. You can hear a pin drop in this room. Like the Holy Spirit just walked in and joined us. Because when you think about who that person is, it's almost like, (gasps) Oxygen fills your soul. And the life that got beat out of you and the fact that so many don't get you, there's somebody who does. Or if there's somebody who doesn't right now, you feel the effects of that as well. Barnabas gets Saul. He takes him back to Saul's hometown of Tarsus. And what we see like looks like a few chapters. It's actually about 11 years of underground training of learning the ways of Jesus and learning what it means to be a part of this way. We don't know much from Barnabas, boom, Acts chapter 11, he pops back up again. And in verse 25, after all these years, Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for an entire year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. So he's on a mission to go get that guy and say, no, 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 no. I didn't put you in underground forever. You and I, let's partner. Let's lock arms. Let's go tell people about Jesus. Let's go plant churches together. Let's begin to live this mission together. Here is what is 
really interesting is that if you have a real Bible, one of those with pages and stuff, okay? If you go to that Bible, and from what I'm describing here in chapter four, you just start flipping, what you'll see is you'll see places that it says, and Barnabas and Saul, da, da, da. Subtitle, Barnabas and Saul, da, 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 da. Get a few chapters later, and we learn that Saul's name is changed to Paul. And all of a sudden, it switches. Paul and Barnabas would go. Paul and Barnabas then set out. It's like while he was Saul, Barnabas is leading, but you see that the mission of his life was to champion Saul, make him into Paul, and then fade into the background and be okay that he is playing second fiddle to the man of God. And he may not have even been there had it not been for Barnabas, but we don't see Barnabas chanting his own name. We see Barnabas being okay to say, I, I see you, I'm championing you, and I'm okay with you rising up to be the man you're called to be. And I wish I could just keep reading verse after verse about this, but let me just summarize, because years later, Barnabas and Saul have a big conflict. And the conflict, by this time Saul has become Paul, and the conflict is they're about to take off for another missionary journey, and Barnabas taps a guy named John Mark and says, come be with us. And Paul is livid. He is literally like, you've gotta be kidding me. On the last missionary journey, John Mark bolted and he deserted us out there. Why in the world would we bring this guy? I'd pay money to hear that conversation. You just have to wonder if Barnabas goes, come here, bro. Hmm, was there ever a time, maybe in the past, that a, you had been kind of boxed out or seen someone kind of boxed out, and yet somebody believed in you regardless, could see you, could kind of get you? Can you recall a time? And you just kind of wonder if he'd lean over and go, by the way, John Mark wasn't murdering people. He just wanted to go be with his mom. <laughs> now, I can't prove that anything I just said happened. That is not in the Bible. That's just me inferring. When I read these verses, you just feel the love of Barnabas just pulsating through these pages as his voice is raising, going, we've got to bring John Mark. And Paul's like, he's not going. And the, the conflict escalates and they go separate ways. Barnabas takes John Mark, Paul goes his own direction. What's interesting is you hear a lot from Paul after that, you don't hear hardly anything else at all from Barnabas throughout scripture, except that that man, John Mark, that he believed in must have found his way. Because ever in your life, if you have ever opened the Bible and read from the gospel of Mark, you are reading an account and a narrative that was written by a man that Paul had said no more. And Barnabas had said, I see you. But Barnabas, this has been so deeply convicting to me because the older I get, the worse I feel like I get at loving people. I mean, I was a nice person a long time ago and then I got married. And I had kids and I became a leader People want me to lead more things because I look like a nice guy. Y'all pay, I'm a professional Christian. Y'all pay me to be nice. So I look like I'm nice. But if you talk about truly loving, there's so many times I'll be like, wow, it's getting harder, you know? And all the times I'd be like, I've got to spend time with God. So I'd be like praying. And then my kids or my family or others interrupt me. And I'm like, shut the heck up. I'm trying to pray over here, you know? And 
You kind of look at yourself and you're like, I don't even know that I'm becoming more loving. I'm going to the church all the time and I'm doing all these spiritual disciplines and practices, but is it truly making me a more loving person should be the question I should be asking. And if it's not, is he the head of the church? See, my leader is, is this the gospel I am ascribing to? If you're sitting there today going, yeah, I, I need help as well. I'm with you. If you've got this figured out, you're free to go. Save 12 minutes of your life. But for those of us who might need a little bit more practice, you might need to lean in a little bit. Because if you are convinced you want to be a Barnabas, you want to live out this gospel, you want him to be the head of the church, like we said last week, we don't want you walking out of here trying really hard to be Barnabases this week. Because it'll come down to your first failure, you'll feel like a jerk, and you'll feel guilty, and you'll give up. But the goal is you're going to have to train yourself. This is practice. Today's the day of practice. Tomorrow's going to be another day of practice. Get all the kids in the car, it's a day of practice. Going to life group, it's more practice. And interacting with that college friend of mine that feels more like an enemy, that's more practice. You're going to have to put yourself in a place of practice. Recently, I've been really stirred by this fantastic book that is called How to Know a Person. And it's written by a New York Times best-selling author and columnist, and his name is David Brooks, subtitled The Art of Seeing Others Deeply and Being Deeply Seen. And uh, I haven't finished this book, but I think I can recommend this for two reasons. One, he mentions being in the city of Waco, so you know, there's one, one little shout out for him. But second, I really agree with what the point that Brooks is making is that there really is a crumbling of the social dynamics and relationships are all around us in our culture. He calls it a creeping dehumanization. And he mentions how social media really is on the rise, which is not a bad thing at all, a lot of great purposes there. But the problem with social media is now we have the illusion of having social contact with people that we're really not having. So we're not learning the skills of affection and trust and empathy that are needed in order to actually build relationships with others and so he makes the point that stimulation has replaced intimacy. So we're walking around judging one another, not really understanding and seeing anyone. So this has made me want to lean in a little bit more and learn how can I do this. And what he's making the case for is that there's lots of social skills that we all need to learn if we're going to be relating to humans on every level. But they all rest on one foundational skill. And that skill is the ability to understand what another person is going through. Let me say that again. The ability to understand what another person is going through. Again, may seem very simple, but it's yet a lost craft in our world today. How do you help someone feel seen and loved and valued? How can I accurately read you when you're talking to me? How do I understand your heart and your mind so that you feel understood? This is what psychologists are saying. We need like bread and water. And so I love that David Brooks is writing this because he self-identifies as a man who did not have emotions or feelings for about the first three or four decades of his life. So this is not an overfeeler who loves extroverted spirituality. This is someone who by his own admission is very stoic in his own nature and would rather be by himself than with anybody else. But he has devoted his life to studying these types of dynamics. And so what he has done is he has broken all of mankind basically into two categories. And here's what they are. Illuminators and diminishers. But let's say those two words. Illuminators and diminishers. An illuminator is someone who carries a persistent curiosity about other people. Uh, they've been trained in the craft of how to understand 
others, and they know what to look for. They know how to ask the right questions, when to ask those questions, when not to ask those questions. And so in doing so, they just shine this bright light of care on others wherever they go. As a result, you know it because of the people they meet with and they engage with. Those people feel bigger. They feel respected. They feel all lit up because they've been in the presence of an illuminator. You could say Barnabas went and found Saul. But then there's this other word, the diminishers. These are people who unintentionally probably make people feel small and ignored. They tend to stereotype people. They just don't make people feel seen. They're so involved with themselves that other people really aren't even on their radar. Now, turn to your neighbor and tell your neighbor which one you think you are, illuminator or diminisher. Ready, go. Five seconds. Now, I have rarely met anyone who is a proud diminisher, okay? Everybody's probably like, I mean, I think I'm an illuminator, but why do I feel like this guy's gonna just crucify that as soon as I say it out loud? Totally understand that. But when I read this, as I was reading these pages, I love this phraseology, but I have to admit, I just... I just knew I was an illuminator. Um, and I kept reading, and the more I read, the more I became increasingly convinced I had some work to do, that there was some training I was gonna, excuse me, have to give myself to. Here's why. Within that book, he mentioned a scholar by the name of William Ikes. This guy spent over 30 years studying the interactions between people, strangers, friends, family. He's down the road in Arlington, Texas. And Ikes will watch people and he will do these, he, scale, he does a scale of zero to 100 and to see how well did they do it understanding one another at the heart and mind level. And then he gives them a rating. He went from zero to 100. And as you can imagine, some are high, some are low. But the problem Ikes talks about is the fact that the people who are horrible at reading others believe they are just as accurate as everyone else who's scoring 98, 99, and 100. What really uh, hit me is then they put strangers together, they had a conversation, and then they rated them on how well they were at getting one another, and strangers were t worked out at about 20% of getting one another. Then they took close friends and family and put them in the same situation. So I was a little unnerved to learn that it was only a 15% higher Statistic, they were only getting each other about 35% of the time. And I was like, how is that possible? To be such close friends, such close family, and not really understand the other person's heart, mind, and soul, what they're trying to say. Until they began to unroll a study they had done of married couples. And what they found is that the longer a couple is married, the less accurate they are at reading each other. The reason is, is that somewhere along the way, they lock into who their spouse is. And then over the years, that spouse will change and will progress. But the other spouse has fixed them in, in their head at that place where they are. So they put them in a white jumpsuit 
and they don't continue to pursue the mystery of who that individual is. So that individual will end up becoming known better by people outside their marriage than inside their marriage. And if you're married, you know you're like, well, I'm not gonna be a diminisher then. I need to be an illuminator. They're not going outside, they're staying inside. And so it made me go, I wanna be an illuminator, but could it be there's anything I'm doing unintentionally that would be of diminishment? Now, he lists a lot of different traits about what diminishers do. I'm just gonna give y'all a few, is that okay? The number one attribute of a diminisher is their ego. It's the egotism that basically says, I really need you to know my opinion. And as a result, I'm not really curious about other people. I see this all the time. We see this all the time among siblings. They don't really care about each other. We care about our friends, what they think, but not my brother, not my sister. My opinion rules. Number two was anxiety, meaning the, the noise going on in my head about me and the inner tension I'm dealing with is drowning out what's going on in you. So I'm, I'm worried about how you perceive me. I'm worried about what I'm gonna say next, which is a big problem with me. And so I am living in this fear and it's killing the communication between us. Remember Jimmy did a sermon when I was in college and he talked about overcoming fear. And he said, if you wanna overcome fear, just remember when you walk into a room, everybody is thinking about themselves 90% of the time and thinking about you 10% of the time. So when you walk in the room, you get to be like, well, I'm totally free. Y'all aren't thinking about me. You're consumed with you. And that'll set you free to walk in confidence from that point forward. Never forgot that. He was right. David Brooks has now proven it. The third attribute of being a diminisher is what he called the lesser minds problem. This is fascinating to me. They took a bunch of students who were in business schools across America, and they asked them the question, why are you going into business? Over, the overreaching answer was because I want to do something worthwhile in the world. Great. Question number two, why do you think all these other people are in class with you in the business school? Why are they in there? And they said, oh, they're just in it for the money. You know, because everybody else has lesser motivations than you do, right? Because you're more complicated, nuanced, and di different. You have a higher mind and they a lesser mind. Number four was basically what I mentioned earlier in the marriage scenario, what they, what they called the static mindset. This is when someone forms a certain conception of someone that's accurate at some point, but then that person grew up. They changed profoundly, but those people, they never updated their lenses of you. And so as a result, they've let, never let you out of that gap of where you are, okay? So if you're an adult who goes home and your parents still treat you like the kid you were, Instead of the adult you are, you know what I'm talking about. You feel stuck in that place and you may not want to keep going back to that place. Actually, people feel this, do this in the church all the time. If you're a missionary and you've been gone for five years or you left Antioch for 10 years and you came back, most people assume that we are where we are today is where we were when you left. As if we are a static organism that does not shift and change and grow and develop and hopefully be transformed by the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. But the fifth one was probably the most convicting to me personally. It's what Brooks calls essentialism. And basically what this is, is in general, the truth is we do belong to groups and those readings of those groups is usually somewhat accurate, right? So it's like Californians are laid back, right? Germans, they are on time. Swiss people are precise. There's just a lot of things that are accurate. However, those generalizations, they may be accurate for a season, but then they fail at some degree 
And it can be hurtful to some degree because we keep people under these labels and we stereotype full swaths of people. We say, well, that's because you're an eight on the Enneagram. You know, that's because you voted for so-and-so. Oh, I know you because you're an introvert. And you know all introverts are exactly the same. You speak in tongues. There you go. You go to Antioch. Yeah, maybe those two are, put to, are together. Um, you're a Methodist. Oh, you're an Episcopalian. Do you know what's going on in the Episcopalian? I mean, that, that, oh, you go to that church. I already know all about you. And once we begin to practice learning one thing about a person and then make a whole series of assumptions about them, we are stacking on top of them labels and categories they never can get freed from. They're stuck there and, some, and sometimes they're stuck there for the rest of their lives. Now, I hope what you're seeing as you hear this, everyone every day could be a diminisher. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, everybody could actually be an illuminator. That's the point of this book Brooks is writing. It's the point of the story of Barnabas, is that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we could change. Something could shift inside of us. You could become an illuminator. Here's what you need to know. It's not natural to you. It is a supernatural thing that will have to occur as you are changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because what we're not trying to do is just not hold the past over people's heads. We're trying to get into their bones, basically, and be like, we see you. We're with you. We believe in you. That's what we're trying to get to. And again, I think I'm a pretty nice guy. Most people feel loved by me most of the time. But when I start thinking about what it means to be an illuminator, I'm thinking about a, an experience my wife and I had a few years ago. We went to this intensive for pastors and missionaries. And there was a point in the weekend, in the, in the, in the, in the, in the space, where they break you up from your spouse, actually, and you're in this co-ed group, and you have to walk in, sit there, and I was already mad. I was just like, I don't want to be friends with these people, and I'm just here to get the information. They're making us talk, and I don't want to do all of that, and Blair's not with me, and this is ridiculous. And so then the, leader, the lady started talking, and I was like, wow, she's dramatic. And so I just like... You know, there's my, I just, large swaths of assumptions over people. Great start, great start to this intensive for pastors and missionaries. And so she has us, he gives us this thing called a feeling wheel. Anybody ever seen this? And you have to go through, you have to point to a couple emotions you're experiencing. And you learn pretty quick, most of us are not good at talking about emotions. We talk about our feelings or experiences. And then in our case, you had to share where in your body you're feeling that. And nobody really knew what to do. People were just like, I am perplexed and ang anxious in my thumbs. I mean, like, no, he's like, it was just weird. And she'd be like, okay, okay. I was like, that's not okay. That's weird. And it just made me madder. And I remember I was like, I feel anger and rage in my fists. But, you know, you got to do this every day. And then she gave us three rules. Here's three rules. You are not allowed to encourage anyone in these sessions. You are not allowed to relate to anyone by telling them how your story relates to theirs. And you're not allowed to offer any solutions. I was like, you just took every one of the weapons out of my arsenal. I have no hope. 
Like that's Carl Gully pastoring 103. Oh, I'm so sorry you feel that way. You're amazing. I just want you to know I'm with you, heart and soul. And hey, I've been there. This happened with my kids. And, and so here's what we're going to do about it. And she was like, can't do that. And I was like, I'm leaving because I feel more anger and more rage in my fists. And people would begin to share and they would share so vulnerably about their scenarios. And I remember one lady just sharing that they had just diagnosed one of her children with a mental health situation and she just felt so much shame that, she had, that her son had lived in that for years and years and she never knew it. And our, our crew, all of a sudden, we jumped in and we're like, hey, you're a great mom. You're a woman of God. We see the call of God on your life. And she'd be like, do not encourage them. Someone else would be like, hey, I just went the same thing and there's a psychologist. She'd be like, no, do not relate. And so you'd have to sit there and be like, what do I say? And you daily, for weeks, we had to train ourselves, do not prepare your answer, what you're going to say. Look her in the eye and say, wow. You must be so flooded with emotions. I bet it's just hard to actually process life right now. And we would, and eventually they would be like, yes, that's exactly what I feel. And they'd light up and they would talk more and then, We'd have to do it again. Wow, but man, all that shame, is that, is that suffocating? Yes. And it was like oxygen was filling their souls as they began to talk. And when we left, we kind of learned that our group had you know, become such a tight group. And it wasn't because we were these extroverted, encouraging people who could relate to everybody with great solutions. It's because Hebrews 4.15 says that we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with us. Meaning, we have a high priest, Jesus, who's able to feel inside what we have gone through and in doing so puts oxygen in our lungs and empowers us to do that to the people around us so that we see them. We can be Barnabas to them. We can be an illuminator to them by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by our works, because we're not gonna be able to boast at the end of the day. It's all about what Jesus has done. And I just have to wonder if this is something we all need to learn. If you've been in my pause class, you know we practice this and then we get down and we go, how'd it go? And every time they're like, really bad. Because we're bad at this. Take away encouragement, relating and solutions, we don't know what to do. Be in it with you? Whole nother story. But the scriptures point that we can change. The scriptures say you can go from a diminisher to an illuminator. You know how I know? Because towards the end of Paul's life, one of the last letters he writes is, is in 2 Timothy. He makes a list of everybody who has left Jesus and even left him. Only a couple guys left. In chapter 4, verse 11, this is what we read. Only Luke is with me. Get John Mark. Bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. So this old man seems to have softened. And all of a sudden, he sees John Mark. And is like, Barnabas was right. I need that guy. And he's changed to be able to bring this man into his life and walk alongside of him. I just have to wonder, with all the ruptures going on in our nation and in our families and in our churches, I just have to wonder if maybe by the power of the Holy Spirit, God wants to do this work of love in us so we can go, I see you. And I don't agree with you. By the way, I'm not trying to get everybody in this church to agree. That'd be a really boring, same, same church. That's not what we're going for. Actually, part of love is being able to differentiate where we disagree and still love each other. So we're not trying to get you to all agree. We're trying to actually get you to step into someone else's shoes to be able to be like, I see you, I get you. And so the question we have to ask is, 
are there two to three people that we have put in a white jumpsuit and we've not let them out? In our offices or in our, in our churches or maybe in your family, in your college dorm, teenagers at your school, someone that you just kind of given large swaths of assumptions for. And then maybe today you're saying, I want Jesus to be the head of his church. I don't want him to change me by the power of the Holy Spirit. He can do that because when Jesus hung on a cross, these people were killing him and he said, forgive them, Lord. They don't know what they're doing. He was able to love them right in the middle of his difference with them. And when I was thinking about how to end today, I was originally thinking maybe we could all turn and practice this with one another and I would take away these three weapons in your arsenal and you'd have to listen. And then I just realized I can help you be, you know, I can help you act more loving today. I can't help you be more loving today. That's where the, the preacher has to stop and the spirit has to begin. He has to do the work in us for us to truly become loving. Not just act loving, but become loving. And there's a counterintuitive action we're all gonna take as we end our time today. It's going to help us do this by the power of the Holy Spirit. I love this quote by Dane Orland. He's an author and pastor. And he says, only as we drink down the kindness of the heart of Christ will we leave in our wake everywhere we go the aroma of heaven and die one day having startled the world with glimpses of a divine grace too great to be boxed in by what we deserve. Isn't that beautiful? Only as we drink down the kindness of the heart of Christ. So maybe what you need to do is just sit there and receive that bright light of heaven, just the kindness of God. You don't, don't, don't forget, don't repent, don't pour out your heart, don't encourage God, don't try to solve the world, just let his kindness be put on you. And if you've never given your life to Jesus, maybe today is that day. Today is that day you realize you were boxed out of a kingdom, you had no way of getting in, and you were put in a white jumpsuit, and you were not going to get out of that, but Jesus took your jumpsuit on himself, he died, he was buried, and he came back to life, and through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, Barnabas is a prophetic picture of Jesus, who would make a way for you to the Father, so that you could have relationship with God, be adopted into a family, and never be alone, it's the beautiful gospel story, it never gets old, and it might be that that's what you need today more than anything else. But it also might be that you just need to pause and just say, shine your kindness, Lord. I want to drink it down to the last drop. I just want to encourage you to close your eyes and just let his kindness be poured out on you. Don't say a word, just receive this kindness. He enjoys you, just let him enjoy you. song our prayer you're just drinking down the kindness of Jesus right now for you
Let this be your prayer. We'd startle the world with the aroma of God.